Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice, for the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. This is God's word for us today. Thank you, Christy. Good morning. My name is Greg Allis. I'm a member here at Redemption and serve on the elder team. And it's a real privilege for me to bring the message this morning. I recently came across an article entitled, entitled How to Become Rich, 11 Powerful Skills from Napoleon Hill. Now, this was from his book, Think and Grow Rich, which is one of the top 10 all-time bestsellers in the self-help category. And some of the power skills included these. <clears throat> Have a burning desire. Set clear goals. Have unwavering faith in yourself. Use auto-suggestion. I'm not sure what that is, but learn all the time. Use your imagination. Know your strengths and weaknesses. Think positive. Avoid the negative. Have determination. Be persistent. Now, these powerful skills seem pretty similar to some of the other advice I've typically found in the business world about being successful. And probably you've heard some of these as well. The one skill on this list that caught my eye was actually the first one, to have a burning desire. Because it seems like most of the rest of the skills depend upon that one. You can't set clear goals or be determined or be persistent unless you have a burning passion about something, right? And Napoleon Hill went on to further define this and say, to become rich or successful, you're going to have to have a burning desire. This means more than just plain old hard work and sacrifice. It means you have to be willing to do whatever it takes. You have to give up things that many others won't. Now, again, this is a common idea, not only in the business world, but also, I think, in, in popular culture today. We hear it in many different forms, right? Follow your heart is the Disney theme, or follow your dreams. You do you, live for your passion, etc., etc. The idea is to identify your passion or dream or desire and then go for it, make it happen. But the question I want to ask this morning is is that really the best way to live? Where does God fit into this picture? Does he have anything to say about my passions and desires? Does he have any desires for me? When we open the Bible, we discover that God does have much to say about our desires. In fact, the person who's dead in sin in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that they indulge in the desires of the flesh and of the mind and are by nature children of wrath. But the Bible also recognizes that desires are part of human life. 
In Psalm 37, 4, it teaches us to delight ourselves in the Lord and he will give us the desires of our heart. God calls us to put his desires before our own personal desires and then everything seems to fall in place. And one of God's greatest desires for us is that we would share in his righteousness and that his righteousness would be our burning desire. And Psalm 112 sets before us a picture of praise for God's righteousness in us. And that leads us to our big idea today. We praise God for the treasure of his righteousness made available to us. Now, before we jump into the details of Psalm 112, I want to say a few things about this psalm by way of introduction. As Carl mentioned earlier, Psalm 112 is really closely related to Psalm 111. And Psalm 111 is about God, his works and his character, especially his redemption of his people, Israel. And Psalm 112 is about the man of God and how he is like God. In fact, there are 11 words or phrases in Psalm 111 that describe God that are repeated in Psalm 112 that describe the person of God. And the most significant of these phrases is the phrase, his righteousness endures forever. Now again, that describes God in, chapter, or in Psalm 111 verse 3, but it's, re, it's repeated verbatim twice in 112 in verses 3 and verse 9. And there it describes the man of God. Psalm 111 focuses on the righteousness of God as it is revealed through his works, but Psalm 112 reveals the righteousness of God revealed in his greatest work, that is, people made in his image to reflect his character and specifically his righteousness. Now, righteousness is a key theme throughout the Bible. You'll see it in hundreds, maybe thousands of verses. We go back to Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Righteousness is a major theme. Some might even argue the major theme in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. Two of the Beatitudes, which describe people on earth who are blessed by God, directly refer to Righteousness. The fourth beatitude says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And the last beatitude, the eighth one says, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus goes on to say to the people of his day, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in Jesus' big idea for his sermon, some would call it his big idea, he says this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We see this theme everywhere. everywhere. The gospel itself is said to reveal the righteousness of God in Romans 1.16, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. 
For the righteous will live by faith. This righteousness of God, which Jesus said we should seek above all else, is revealed in the gospel through faith. And so here in Psalm 111 and 112, we also see the righteousness of God. First in his works, and then in his people, his righteous people. So Psalm 112 is about the righteousness of God in us. Now let's look at this a little more deeply in two points as we dig into this psalm. The first point being the righteous, the righteous. Who are the righteous? What does it mean to be righteous? There are at least four descriptions or characteristics of the righteous in this psalm. And the first is that the righteous fear the Lord. We see that in verse 1. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Now, the fear of the Lord is another central theme in the Old Testament, especially in the wisdom literature. Carl mentioned this earlier. We hear the phrase, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, over and over. In fact, it was in verse 11 of, or first uh, 9 of 111, or no, I'm sorry, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. Now, some today might try to soften the word fear by substituting the word honor or respect. And the idea is that God doesn't want us to fear him, but to love and respect him. Now, certainly God does want us to love and respect him. However, this does not nullify the need for us to fear him as well. For fearing God, actually being afraid of what he can do to us, is crucial for a right relationship with him. And this fear is a great blessing to those who understand it. The Bible teaches us at least three reasons why we should fear God. The first reason is that he has power over eternal life and death. And this is not just an Old Testament concept. Jesus made this abundantly clear when he taught his disciples. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, he said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now this is a verse that sadly will not be spoken in many churches today. But nonetheless, this is a truth that Jesus clearly wanted us to know. There is someone who can destroy your body and soul in hell. That's God. And Jesus says, we should fear him. It seems today that the greatest fear of many in the world recently has been COVID-19. Because COVID can kill the body. This fear has been such a focus of concern in our society. And it has been the primary motivator to take unprecedented actions in our nation. Actions which some consider to seem irrational. But that's what fear does. And so we want to be careful who or what we fear because it has such a profound impact on our lives. As moral human beings, fear is part of our life. We will fear something. The question is, what fear will dominate you? What fear will motivate your actions? For most, death is the greatest fear. For the righteous, their greatest fear is God. And as the saying goes, fear God and fear nothing else. Don't fear God and fear everything else. 
So we fear him because he has the power over eternal life and death. But secondly, we fear him because he's an impartial judge. He's the impartial judge. Paul teaches us this in 2 Corinthians 5.10. He says that the fear of the Lord is knowing that we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And Peter adds in 1 Peter 1.17 that we all, that if we call on God as our Father, we should conduct ourselves with fear during our time on earth, knowing that God impartially judges according to each one's deeds. The third reason we forgive, we should fear God is sort of surprising. It's because he is the forgiver. He's the forgiver. And this is one of the more beautiful aspects of the fear of the Lord. Psalm 130 verses 3 and 4 says this, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word, I hope. God not, only, God not only holds the power of death, but also of life. And he alone has that most precious of gifts necessary for life, forgiveness. And so the righteous fear and hope in him. So that's the first characteristic of the righteous. They fear the Lord. The second characteristic is that they greatly delight in his commandments. This is also in verse 1. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. <clears throat> now, this may be a surprising result of the fear of the Lord, for one could imagine a dejected, cowering figure reluctantly obeying God only because he is terrified of his power. This is often a popular, stereotypical caricature of Christians. However, that is not an accurate picture of the righteous. As the fear of the Lord teaches one to see God as the most significant person in one's life, one begins to get to know this God and what he commands us to do and how to live. And this results in a delight in God's commands as we begin to understand that God commands us to love instead of hate, to give instead of steal, to speak truth and not lie, to be content instead of lusting and coveting what is not ours. God's commands reveal what is lovely and true, what is right and good, what is in our best interest. And then this becomes the delight of the soul of the righteous. I think this is something of what John was talking about in 1 John when he talked about perfect love casting out fear. We begin by fearing the Lord, but as we get to know him and grow in our love for him, that fear subsides and love takes over. And it is the righteous who delight in God's commandments who make the best evangelists and representatives of Jesus. For this is the goal of the gospel as Jesus taught us in the Great Commission to go into all the world and make disciples. And how do we do that? We baptize them and teach them what? To obey all that he has commanded us. Those who delight in his commands will be the most persuasive in teaching others Jesus' commands as well. Now, this is a great test for self-examination to see if we are righteous. Do you greatly delight in God's commandments? That leads us to the third characteristic of the righteous, 
and that is that they are gracious, merciful, and generous. We see this in verse, verses 4 and 5 and verse 9. Notice verse 4. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends. And then in verse 9, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 9, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. Now this again may be a surprising description of the righteous, for we may mistake the righteous for the self-righteous person who's always looking down on others and despising them, like the Pharisees of Jesus' day and some of the stereotypically righteous of our own day. However, the truly righteous know their own need for grace and mercy, and they are quick to give the same to others. This is another one of the descriptions of God in Psalm 111, particularly verse 4, where it says that he is gracious and merciful. And then it is repeated about the godly person here in Psalm 112. Now, part of the reason the righteous are often mischaracterized is because God himself is often pictured as a tyrannical monster ready to strike down the unsuspecting human with a bolt of lightning as soon as they do something that displeases him. This could not be farther from the truth. God is a generous God, and this is most profoundly revealed in Jesus, the most generous gift sent by the Father on a mission of mercy, who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Grace upon grace is poured out to us from our Heavenly Father, and we are never more like God than when we are gracious, merciful, and generous. Finally, the fourth characteristic of the righteous is that they trust in the Lord, verses 7 and 8. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks on triumph over his adversaries. <clears throat> That the righteous live by faith and trust in God is repeated over and over in Scripture. And this faith is central to the gospel of our salvation. Here this trust is described, is described twice as making the heart firm and steady. The heart is our inner person, the seed of our thoughts and our emotions. The righteous so completely trust in the Lord that all his thoughts and emotions are firm and steady. Now, all four of these descriptions of the righteous can be used as questions for self-reflection, to examine to see if we are truly righteous. Do you fear the Lord? Do you greatly delight in his commandments? Are you gracious, merciful, generous? Do you trust in the Lord? This is who the righteous are. Now let's look at their blessing from God. Their blessing from God. This is part two here. And I think there are at least six descriptions of blessings for the righteous person. The first one being a powerful and blessed family in verse two. It says, his offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. The righteous are a blessing to their family, and their family experiences the blessing of God. 
Now, I realize this can be a sensitive topic, as family relationships can not only be a source of great satisfaction and joy, but also grave disappointment and heartache. Nevertheless, the Bible does repeatedly talk about this blessing. Abraham and David, who both had some dysfunction in their family, would be two primary examples of this generational blessing from God toward their descendants that has had the greatest impact on the world. But this kind of family influence can also be on a much smaller and localized level as well. The second blessing we see here is wealth and riches, verse 3. Wealth and riches are in his house. I'm going to qualify this a little bit later, but wealth and riches can be a blessing on the house of the righteous. And in fact, if a, if a person is to be generous like the righteous are described as being, they need something to be generous with. And so this blessing of wealth and riches fuels the generosity of the righteous. The third blessing we see here is deliverance in verses 4 through 8. And this psalm does not suggest that the life of the righteous is all roses and sunshine. For the, right, for they, the righteous do experience trials and difficulties. As verse 4 speaks of times of darkness. Verse 7 speaks of receiving bad news, and verse 8 speaks of adversaries or enemies. However, in the end, for the righteous, the darkness eventually ends and the light comes, and they triumph over their enemies. The fourth blessing is fearlessness in verses 7 and 8. We talked about this a little bit already, but... Verse 7 and 8 says, He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid. Twice the phrase, he will not fear, is repeated in these verses. And in particular, the righteous do not fear bad news. I think we can all agree that our world is full of bad news. It almost seems like the news industry thrives on bad news. And there is a great deal of fear and anxiety that this can create in a person's life as we, we feel like the world is falling apart around us. But as the righteous learn to fear God, live by faith, and grow in their trust in the Lord, anxiety and stress in thoughts and emotions are diminished, and a fearless approach to life is developed, and the righteous experience the peace of God that transcends all understanding. The fifth blessing is power with honor in verse, verse 9c. It says, his horn is exalted in honor. The horn obviously is a symbol of one's strength and power, and one's horn being exalted in honor is a description of someone taking a position of leadership and influence to the joy and satisfaction of those they are leading. It is not someone who has clawed and scratched, deceived, or stepped on others to grab power for themselves, to be used for themselves, but rather it is someone who, because of their integrity and generosity and mercy, others want to follow. Finally, the last blessing here is the key phrase, his righteousness endures forever. This is in verses 3 and 9. The thought is repeated in verse 6. And again, this is, this, this is, I believe, the main idea of Psalm 112. This righteous character that we receive from God, that describes God again in Psalm 111, and then it, it describes us again, us who are righteous in Psalm 112, this has an enduring quality. 
It endures forever. Not just this life, but in the life to come. Scripture repeatedly describes the kingdom of God being filled with his righteousness. And those who are born of God also practice this righteousness. This is what 1 John 2.29 says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. This righteousness is not something we do once in a while or just on Sundays. It's a growing character likeness of God that steadily increases throughout our lives and carries us into eternity. My notes are turned around here. I think this is it. This is the righteous. God and his word are central to them. They are generous and compassionate with resources that God has graciously and abundantly poured out on them. The opposite of the righteous would be the wicked mentioned in the final verse, verse 10. Those who do not fear God and delight in his commands but oppose them. Those who are not gracious, compassionate, and generous, but selfish and oppressive. This wickedness will not endure forever. It will ultimately be brought to an end for the world that God is preparing for his people is a world of righteousness where no evil will dwell. The idea that we can be a part of this coming world of righteousness reminds us of the big idea for today. We praise God for the treasure of his righteousness made available to mankind. I want to step back for a couple of minutes and just think about this psalm and how it relates to us today. And one question that comes to my mind as I think about this psalm is, is this psalm true today? And the first thing I would want us to consider this morning is, righteousness is not always positively rewarded in our passing fallen world. Psalm 112 describes the righteous being exalted positions of wealth and power to the benefit of all, while the wicked are vexed by this and their desires are not realized. But a moment's reflection will suggest to us that this is not true in the real world. In fact, the wicked who do not fear God and do not delight in his commands seem to be the ones who are often the most rich and powerful. For example, the most powerful person on the earth is considered to be Xi Jinping of China. And he is violently opposed to Christ and his church. He's actively trying to obliterate the church in China. Far from being exalted to positions of wealth and power or influence, our brothers and sisters in Christ in China are being cruelly persecuted. And this story is a common experience of those who fear God around the world. How do they read Psalm 112? And even in America, not going along with our current moral revolution that is so opposed to God's word can put many of our careers or our reputations at risk. We can be in danger of being canceled. Our political and economic systems are corrupt, and pursuing God's righteousness is not seen as the secret to success in these realms. So is Psalm 112 true? As we think about this, it's very important to read this psalm in its context, the context of the book of Psalms and the context of Scripture. This psalm was originally written as a Jewish song to Jewish people living in a unique 
covenant with God. God had redeemed them out of slavery and promised to be their God and that they would be his special people. They were to fear him and keep his commandments, as Psalm 112 talks about. And and when they did that, there would be a blessing of righteousness upon the land. Now, there may have been some high points in Jewish history. We have most of it chronicled for us in the Bible. There may have been some glimpses of righteousness where, where righteousness was seen in his people. But a cursory reading of the Old Testament will show us that this was the rare exception rather than the rule. As Israel failed to fear God and keep his commandments, the reality of God's righteousness on display through them was lost. And they were scattered in exile as an oppressed minority among the nations who did not know God's righteousness. And the picture of righteousness that we see in Psalm 112 that was supposed to be shown in Israel was largely lost. Now this becomes even more apparent as we step back and we look at all of Scripture, and especially at the person and teaching of Jesus. For Jesus, who is the righteous one, did not experience the blessings of wealth and power during his time on earth. And this was largely due to the corrupt system into which he was born and and which he exposed in his teaching. Indeed, Jesus called the poor blessed, and he warned the rich of judgment to come. He often taught of the dangers of wealth and greed, even saying it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. This was Matthew 19.24. He made this statement after a rich young ruler, someone who would seem to epitomize Psalm 112, had just turned away from him and his kingdom because he loved his possessions. Jesus had to correct a misunderstanding of the Old Testament that was shared by the Pharisees and even some of his own disciples. And that misunderstanding seemed to come from focusing on the blessings of wealth and riches from a passage like Psalm 112 and other passages we could look to in the Old Testament rather than the righteousness described in this psalm. Even as we read Psalm 112 today, we can get excited about the blessings it describes, but fail to see the real treasure is the righteousness of God in us. The reason we we read the Bible like this is because of our unregenerate, sinful hearts. As in all of his teaching, Jesus would zero in on the heart as the source of the issue when dealing with the temptations to wealth and power and the failure to pursue righteousness. In Matthew 6, 19-21, Jesus said, Do not lay up yourself treasures in heaven, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's the question, right? Where is my treasure? Where is my heart? Another way of saying it is, what is my burning desire? These are difficult questions to answer because our hearts are deceitful, especially when it comes to questions regarding our desires for wealth and power. Psalm 112 gives us some great tests for self-examination. We've talked about these a little bit already, but 
Do I fear God above all else? And do I delight in obeying his commands even when it costs me financially or I may not get the promotion I desire? It's when we're faced with these kinds of choices that the treasure of our heart is most truly revealed. What about generosity? Are you a generous person? I find that most people talk a good game about being generous, but when it comes down to actually giving hard-earned money away, that's when we see what our, what's in our, our true heart. This is especially true when Jesus tells us to do our giving in secret. When there is no societal perks to stroke our eagles or to promote our name, when our giving is only between us and God, those who are consistently generous in secret have a true righteousness, and their treasure is with God above and not on earth. Now, these can be uncomfortable questions to ask and and to reflect upon as we examine our hearts. And when we do this, we see why our political and economic systems are corrupt. It's because we are corrupt, right? We all struggle with these things. Where are the people who seek his kingdom and his righteousness first and care not about earthly wealth and power? Where are those who, like the Apostle Paul, can sincerely say that they are content whether they are well-fed or hungry, rich or poor? This kind of sincere righteousness is the unique work of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This kind of righteousness is rare in our passing fallen world, but such righteousness is to be a part of his redeemed people in the church. And that's the second point I want to reflect upon this morning. The church is where God's righteousness is to be seen in today's world. It's here among us. This is where righteousness should be on display. There is no other nation like Israel in covenant with God today, but the church is to be God's people, and we are called a holy nation within all other nations who are to declare and display his righteousness. Interestingly enough, Psalm 112 is quoted one time in the New Testament, and it's in a letter to a church in Corinth, that is extreme, it's an extremely important passage about righteousness and generosity for us today as Christians. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and it says this, God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. <clears throat> As it is written, and here Paul quotes Psalm 112, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. And notice what Paul says then. Now he, <clears throat> now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Now, there's a lot in this passage, and this isn't a sermon on 2 Corinthians 9, but we see in this passage God's vision for us, the church, that we will have a righteousness that cheerfully gives of our resources to those in need, and then God sees that we can be entrusted with more resources to continue to give resulting in a harvest of righteousness in our own life that brings glory and thanksgiving to God as his righteousness is expressed through us to the church and to the world. 
This is the vision for us. We may not see this kind of righteousness out there in the world today, but hopefully we do see it in the church and hopefully we see it in our church. God's righteousness revealed in the gospel is to be redeemed through us, his redeemed people. We may only see glimpses of this now, but there is a kingdom coming in which righteousness dwells. That will be the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 112. That is the hope that we have in him. As we close today, I want to just thirdly say one word of exhortation. Desire righteousness, not riches or power or any other blessing that you might desire. As I mentioned earlier, our sinful tendency is to read Psalm 112 and want the blessings and not necessarily the righteousness. In fact, there is a false gospel today called the prosperity gospel, or sometimes it's called the health and wealth gospel, that teaches God wants you to be rich and powerful. This is a lie. God wants you to be righteous, even if such righteousness costs us all our wealth and position. And it's possible that that can happen, especially in other parts of the world. But if righteousness is our desire, we can rest in Jesus' words. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So how do we come to desiring righteousness? It's easy for me to stand up here and say desire righteousness above all other desires, but we all know that this is easier said than done. How do we change those deep desires that we have? How do we change them to desire what God wants for us? To treasure what God treasures for us? This is the miracle of regeneration, and only God can ultimately accomplish this in our hearts. If you know this morning that there are competing desires in your heart, and it's true for every one of us, or that righteousness is really not that big of a desire in your life, cry out to God to do his work within you, to give you a new heart. It's interesting that there are no imperatives or commands in Psalm 112. It just shows us God's righteousness and its blessings. Maybe God is using this psalm this morning to begin to stir a desire for his righteousness in your life. This is part of what the, the Bible is designed to do, to paint this picture of righteousness for us. So we see the beauty of righteousness in the pages of Scripture. And we especially are called to see the beauty of righteousness in Jesus himself. As we behold Jesus, the Bible says we are transformed from glory to glory. So look to him. Call out to him when you're struggling with your own sinful desires. Ask him to give you the treasure of his righteousness in your life. And if God has done and is doing a work of regeneration and righteousness within you, lift up your hallelujah with the psalmist in praise to him. Let's... Uh, close together in prayer.
Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for this picture of your righteousness that can be ours this morning. And it is our prayer, Father, that you would begin to do your work in many of our lives this morning and continue to do your work within us. Father, may we be a church that does display your righteousness to one another and to those outside of our doors. For your honor, for your glory, Lord, and and we look forward to the day when we'll be a part of your kingdom where righteousness will dwell and we will be at that time free from sin only to glory in your righteousness. We thank you for this, Lord, and we praise you for this this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.